You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning, church family. My name is Calder Sprinkle. I am a senior at Trinity Episcopal School, and I'm normally hiding back there behind an instrument. But somebody had the bad idea of asking me to preach today, so here I am. But I'm super excited to be sharing God's Word with you all this morning. So, when I originally talked to Rick and Andrea about what I was going to be preaching on, I was like, great, so, oh, I have three words. And we know. Well, luckily, that's just enough for a good old classic Presbyterian three-point sermon. So here we go. Did you know that the word and, according to the incredibly reliable source of Quora.com, appears over 60,000 times in the King James edition of the Bible? However, we have a problem. In the ancient Greek, the word and isn't in there. So I've been thwarted by a dead language. Regardless, I think I can make a two-point sermon work. But before we dive in, please pray with me. God, our Father, there is no one like you, and we are in awe of your glory and your majesty. We pray that you would speak through me this morning, through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would not just hear your words, but be changed by them, participate in them, and respond to them in accordance to your will, with obedience and love. In your holy name we pray, amen. All right, so first, some backgrounds on the book of Roman as a whole. Roman was, Romans was written by, we all know him, we all love him, Paul, our missionary friend. Uh, he opens the book after his traditional greeting in Romans 1-7 with, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. The church in Rome was going through a pretty rough time at this point. It was just reforming after a bunch of the Jewish community had been kicked out. And they were trying to figure out at this point what it meant to combine their Jewish faith with this new faith that they had found in Christ and what that meant for customs and how to worship. So Paul is writing this letter to encourage them. And uh, many scholars refer to this as Paul's magnum opus. It is a summation of his beliefs and a laying out of the gospel. So with that in mind, let's dive in. And we know. These are some pretty hard words in our current time when uncertainty is kind of the theme. And as a senior, I am very aware of how little I know about what's going on in the future and definitely about what's going on right now. So those are some pretty hard words. But Paul uses this language very intentionally, and I think that's very important, and it's good news for our current time. So sticking with my two-point sermon theme, I'm going to start with no. The entire phrase we know is oidamen in Greek, from the root oida, which is the idea of knowledge. It's closely related to sight or seeing, but it also has a common root with our English word wit. So it's a knowledge that is not only experienced, but also internalized. It becomes part of you, dare I say, even a character trait. In English, we kind of throw around the word know a lot, and to some extent, it loses its meaning. But this language is very specific, and that's important to remember as we go on, that this is a deep confidence that we have, which is deep inside of us. So as a senior, I just finished my second semester of a class called Theory of Knowledge. And if I had to suffer through that for two semesters, then I'm going to use it. So bear with me. There are a number of ways that we talk about knowing something. The one that is most often connected with Christianity, of course, is faith. Now, as a student at a 
allegedly religious high school, but also still very secular. I am acutely aware of the fact that faith is often something that turns people off from Christianity. It's hard to believe that strongly about something for many people. So there are, in addition to just faith, specifically with this verse, there are two other ways of knowing I want to touch on that we can use and apply to our faith in God. So first there is reason which is our rational process. And a lot of people see this as kind of like the opposite of faith, but it can still work together with it. Um, in fact, this is really, the best way to describe this is thinking about the way that God has been faithful over time and thinking back to his goodness and his glory. In Psalm 18, King David is writing a psalm of praise to God after being delivered from the hand of Saul over and over again. He says, He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. The Lord was my support. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. This is a very uh, assertive statement of God's goodness and his continued work in David's life. And we can see the same thing. For me, as a personal example, I've seen a number of my friends, including Jared Armistead, healed from cancer by the grace of God and by modern medicine working in conjunction. So this is really important. We can use reason to rationalize our faith. Second is intuition, which is a deep knowledge um, that we often can't explain. It's, it's sometimes referred to as a gut feeling. For me, I, the best way I can explain this is when I was on a mission trip with our student ministry team in Mexico. Um, we stopped for a lunch break uh, in the middle of building a shed and started playing soccer with two of the kids who were living in the house. Now, anyone who knows me knows that I am terrible at organized sports. I stay as far away from possible and run the other direction. So standing in the, this middle, the middle of the field with around 20 other people trying to figure out where the ball was and what I was supposed to be doing was a little bit scary. But in that moment, you know, playing with these two kids who I barely knew and a bunch of my friends from church, I had this feeling that this was good, this was right, and I couldn't explain it. So that's intuition. Now, there is a danger in connecting your gut feeling to specifically to Christianity because as uh, it's put in Jude one nineteen, these are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. So natural instincts can be very dangerous, but friends, we do have the spirit. The Spirit is very important, and in uh, Romans 8.11, Paul himself points it out, the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. And Paul continually riffs on this theme that the Spirit is incredibly essential to our faith. In Romans 5, he says, therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is the work of the Spirit within us. This is this other deeper knowledge, which is inspired by the Spirit at work. All of Romans 8 is focused on the Spirit and the knowledge that he gives us. In fact, in the verse just before, and we know, in Romans 8.27, he says, And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So the Spirit is working in us and gives us this knowledge. So, I've covered no. Now let's look at we. Because this is why we're all here. This is knowledge in community. This is why we attend church. So this is very important, that we are together participating in and responding to the work, the liturgy, the, the sermon, the, everything that we are doing through the Spirit. That's why we're here. For a personal example, kind of outside of this, I had the wonderful privilege to be a part of a Bible study with the Armisteads two years ago, where we would be sent a verse, and we would study it that week, 
And then we would write a song about it and bring it to the others and we would all play them together and really dive deep into the verse that way. Now I know that's hard to connect with for some people who are, don't music or don't Bible study in that same way in a group. But so there's another way that we look at this and we already just did it in the sermon or in the service, the prayers of the people. This is where we collectively affirm the prayers that we are sending to God by saying, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We are actually actively responding to what we are hearing and bringing our faith to God. So not only is, and we know, referring to just what we do with knowledge and coming together as a community, it is referring to who we are. And that, friends, is good news. Amen? Good morning. I'm Lainey Moore, and I am a senior at Freeman High School. Um, I say at Freeman, but honestly, I haven't really been at Freeman very much at all this past year, um, since basically last March. Uh, Henrico County Public Schools are all online until late February, so I've been spending a whole lot of time in the classroom that is my bedroom desk, and frankly, in my bed. I took a statistics test from inside my bed uh, the other day. That was the second one that I've taken from there. In my defense, uh, stats is my first period, and first period starts at 9 a.m., which, in my humble opinion, is far too early to get out of bed. <laughs> but that's about enough about my strange high school experience this year. Um, as you all know, this morning we're talking about Romans 8.28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Calder expounded on the first part of this verse, and we know. Now I'm going to be talking about the middle segment. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Now, this is one of the most misinterpreted verses in the Bible, uh, because it almost sounds like, if I'm good, then good things will happen to me. But that, my friends, is karma. And if Christianity were about karma, we would all be in trouble. The way that karma works, when you do something good, you get rewarded. And when you do something bad, you get punished. It's all about trying to be as good as possible in order to get your reward. But as Christians, we have done nothing to deserve God's love and goodness. We proclaim that he is Lord, but only because God enables us to proclaim that he is Lord, because he loves us. That's the beauty of Christianity. We already have our reward. There is no more guilt because we are forgiven. There is no more anxiety because we have the peace of God. There is no more despair because we have hope in Christ. And it is by God's grace alone that we have that forgiveness, that peace, that hope. Our own efforts did nothing to help us get them. So Romans 8.28 isn't about karma. But if it's not talking about karma, what is it talking about? God works for the good of those who love him. But what does that actually mean? Well, another way that this quote can be misinterpreted is by viewing the word good through a human lens. When I think of things that are good, I often things, think of things that are fun, happy, aesthetically pleasing, would look nice on a Pinterest board. When we see good in that light, we think that God works for the good of those who love him means God will never let anything but pleasure come to us. If we're sad, something is obviously wrong because God is supposed to make sure that we're happy all the time. That mindset, of course, is entirely wrong. It's like when you go to an amusement park, say, 
King's Dominion. And you're expecting to have a fantastically fun time, but it's just a little too hot and a little too crowded, and the lines are a little too long for three measly minutes of roller coaster ride. And you're grouchy and miserable because your fantastically fun time has turned into a fantastically unpleasant time. If you view Christianity like an amusement park where you're supposed to have fun all the time, you will likely live a very unhappy life indeed. Why? Because that's seeing good as lowercase g good. That's seeing good through a short-term lens, something that will make us happy right now. But God's definition of good is nothing like the human definition. God's good is capital G good. Like Calder, I took a leaf out of Corey's book and found the Greek word for good here is agathon, which means good that is intrinsic, good that originates from God and is empowered by him. God's good stretches far beyond our short-term mindsets into eternity. God knows everything and he has a plan. Now, stick with me here because I know we've all heard that line a million times, but that's because it's true. Everything that has ever happened and will ever happen factors into God's plan for our lives, our world, our universe. When Paul tells us that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, what he really means is that through every circumstance, every event in your life, God is working to bring you to the place where he wants you to be. And the place where he wants you to be is good capital G good. God is working for our good and his glory. It's critical to mention that just because God works through every situation in your life to bring you to that capital G good place, not every situation itself is good. Some things are just horrific and terrible because evil exists and it manifests itself in a lot of different places in our world. More than 2 million people worldwide have died from the coronavirus. That is evil. God, however, works for the good in the midst of all things, even things that are evil. Okay, so we know that God is working in all things to bring about his ultimate plan for renewal. That is good news, friends. But what exactly does that mean for us in our day-to-day lives? What does this mean for me as I'm sitting in my bed and taking another stats test? Well, if you're anything like me, you probably spend a fair amount of time worrying. As a senior, I worry about school, I finished applying to colleges about a month ago, thanks be to God, but there was a little while in which I really just wasn't sure that I was going to get all my applications in on time. That was worrying. More of you may relate to this one. I'm finding it increasingly difficult to stay motivated in my entirely virtual sphere of schooling, since I can no longer feed off the motivation of the students sitting around me. That's worrying. I worry about my grades. I worry about what my teachers will think about me. Fortunately for me, fortunately for everyone here, having a relationship with God in which you both know and believe that he is working for your good diminishes anxiety, produces hope, fosters peace, gives joy. As Paul says a little earlier in Romans 8, 6, the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. If you know that God is working in the midst of all things, And like Calder told us, we do know. Even tests, even deadlines, even an utter lack of motivation. You can be at peace because you know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Our country, in case you've been living under a rock, is currently facing a whole lot of political and cultural uncertainty. It's easy to get swept away in fears about the future. It's just as easy to get swept away in the anxieties of day-to-day life. I know that I struggle with fear and doubt and worry every day. There's always something coming up, something I've been putting off, someone who I need to contact. But because we know that God is working for our good, for capital G good, 
We don't need to be anxious. Two of my favorite verses in the Bible are Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7, in which, God, in which Paul tells us, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do y'all hear that? Do not be anxious about anything. God is working to renew all things, and he is working through all things for your good. And that, my friends, is also good news. Hello, church. I'm hoping my brother didn't change the order of my uh, sermon. That would not be good. Um, My name is Peyton Hayes. I'm currently a senior at Collegiate, and I'm going to be delving deeper into Romans 8.28 by focusing on the second half of the verse, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. I've separated this section into two parts, to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. These two clauses are distinct yet interdependent. By living according to God's purpose, we are showing him love and glorifying him. Through loving him, we are pursuing his calling for us. What does it mean to love God in the context of our faith? What does it mean to live according to his purpose? First, we will look at what it means to love God. I love a number of things. I love in no particular order food, my family, friends, more food, whitewater paddleboarding, soccer, and just generally the life that I've been given. I'm often told that God should be first on this list, but I do not think it's possible to compare the immensity of love I have for the creator of the universe to a chicken burrito from El Caporal Mexican restaurant. God shouldn't just be at the top of my list. He deserves his own list. I can't write God love letters like I would a girlfriend or give him a big hug like I would my family members or friends. My whole life, I've been taught to love in a number of ways. Through my words, writing letters, being intentional, and showing physical affection. However, through his written word and through the Holy Spirit within our own hearts, God has provided us with all the necessary spiritual and emotional tools we need to show our love to God in the way he deserves. So what are these tools and how can we love God in the way Paul is encouraging us to love? Firstly, love those around you. I find that a way to love God is by loving his creation while giving him praise for being the creator. This can be shown through writing letters to those who are alone during the pandemic, serving others, and being a voice of love and unity in a divided world. I have two older brothers, some of you may know, so I can personally attest to how hard it can be to love at all times, even in your own household. Serving others can mean serving when it's inconvenient, or maybe it's someone you're not on great terms with. But John 15, 13 tells us, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friend. Both verses, Romans 8, 28 and John 15, 13, use the same Greek word for love, agape, which is the highest form of love, And it's the love that God shows us, which gives us hope that we can radiate God's love to those around us. We can see this clearly through Jesus' death on the cross. Secondly, we love God by spending time in his word and in prayer while being intentional about it. When you love someone, you should want to know them better. We learn a lot lot about God through what he says about himself. Find your way of understanding God's word best and apply it faithfully. For me, I found that going through devotionals and the related Bible passages and taking notes on how I feel helps me process God's word on a personal level. 
Lastly, seek out God in all circumstances. Throughout my walk with Christ, it has too often been the case that I don't turn towards God in the times I need Him most. When things are going well in life, I've been conditioned to turn to God in thanks, like when I get good news or do well on a large assignment in school. However, when things turn sour, I have the tendency to push God out of my mind and rely on myself to make things right. This isn't because I don't want God present in my struggles, but rather because I try and take it upon myself to fix the problem at hand. And only after I realize I'm hopeless do I turn to Christ for help and wisdom. This is where I'm learning that loving God means trusting Him above myself and learning that God is not a last resort. Loving God is seeking Him out and putting Him first. Now, moving on to being called according to His purpose. I used to think my purpose was to play soccer. I thought I was an incredible soccer goalie, and although I later realized I was mediocre at best, two concussions and being diagnosed with a brain tumor quickly squashed all hopes I ever had of being the next Petr Cech. Fortunately, the brain tumor is benign and being checked up on regularly. But interestingly, the very things that closed the door on what I thought was my purpose of being a professional soccer player helped direct my steps to a new path. Having spent more time in an MRI machine than in the goalie box for the collegiate varsity soccer team, I've grown to love medicine. My future on this earth is not clear, nor is anybody's, but I know that whether I end up being a neurosurgeon, an accountant, or a food truck chef, as long as I live my life with faith in Christ, his hope and wisdom will be imparted on me little by little. God's purpose for us isn't a profession, but rather his purpose is to call us heavenward, to draw us to himself. Paul's auspicious message to us in Romans 8.28 illustrates, in my opinion, the most beautiful truth in the world. God has a purpose for each and every one of us, and it's his purpose, not our own. He's also given us the purpose as a community uh, of believers to grow together. The beauty of God's purpose is that all we need to do is accept his call. So what are some ways we can live out God's purpose, not just our own? To start, be open to change. Dave in the movie Hot Rod says, those who are resistant to change are destined to perish. As Christians, we are called to try and act Christ-like and grow to be more like him. Being resistant to this change can be a stumbling block on one's faith. If this past year has shown me anything, it's that change is integral to our walk with Christ and change is inevitable. Day by day, every aspect of our lives has the potential to change. But if we remain rooted in Christ, He can control this change for the good of we who are called according to his purpose. Secondly, remember that God's ultimate purpose for us is not dictating what we do, but rather that we do everything out of love for him. For example, if I were to go on to be a drummer instead of a neurosurgeon, I don't think that God would strike me down and say, your purpose was to be a neurosurgeon. You have failed me. Circumstances change, and we must trust God as a source of constancy and hope in the midst of all of this. Ignatius of Loyola said that all other things on the face of the earth are created for human beings in order to help them pursue the ends for which they are created. The experience I've had with soccer and the times I've needed to trust God have helped me process the whole pandemic as a senior in high school, suffering losses and not living a normal life. But if we can trust what God says in this passage, that he works all things for the good of those who love him, There is great hope that we can walk out of the fellowship hall or our living rooms today expectant that no matter what has come or what will come, we know we can have hope because we know the one who has made the promise, the one who is himself our hope. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us hope and being our hope in these difficult times. I ask you that everyone who hears this message today will leave feeling encouraged and hopeful in the coming days and months and will pour out this hope into those around them. There is enough darkness in the world already, God, so let us be a source of your light. We know that you are always working for our good and your glory. Help us remember this always, Lord, and continue to be the guiding forces, guiding force in our lives now and forever. Amen.